Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. There's a necessary amount of suffering that needs to happen for new ideas or new work or change to happen. Uh, if we, If I don't suffer, I won't know what joy or contentment is. If I flatline, then I won't be able to experience it as deeply. And so the cracks are where the light shines through. The cracks and the weaknesses and the suffering and the pain is what allows for new growth. So that all changes preceded by crisis. Change is actually good. Um, it doesn't feel good, but it actually leads us to new places. And suffering and heartbreak and loss and bankruptcy, um, I think they need to happen. And for us to be able to experience a heightened state of contentment and success. And it was true in my life. And it's true in every person of significance uh, that I value has experienced deep and painful setback or heartbreak or suffering to be able to get to the next level, to be able to get to the next space of awareness. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? 
They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Eric, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Serena, honor to uh, come back. Thanks, bud. Yeah. So, you know, we had you on the show back when we were called Blogcast FM. And part of the reason I wanted to bring you back um, is I wanted to bring you back as part of uh, the book launch for our upcoming book, Unmistakable, Why Only is Better Than Best, because you're one of the people who was profiled in there. But the other reason that I really wanted to bring you back more than that is that you really, in my mind, embody the idea of unmistakable because you really have made your competition irrelevant um, and you've had a profound impact on the way I think about my work, the way I go about creating what I do and everything that I do in the world. So uh, before we get into everything that you're up to, I want to start with a question that might be a little bit different than what you're used to. So what is it that your parents did for a living? And how did that impact the choices that you've made in your life and your career? Sure. My uh, father was a pediatrician and my mother was a stay-at-home mother. And I lived a uh, just an awesome but predictable young uh, childhood in a safe suburban white uh, middle-class neighborhood. Um, so from the sense of kind of safety and security and giving me a sense of uh, kind of inner confidence um, and safety, awesome. As far as cultural diversity and richness and new experiences – I really hadn't experienced um, any of that. And so uh, I look back at my childhood and am very grateful because uh, it was not rocky. Uh, I, you know, in a sense, had kind of the silver spoon put in my mouth. I think that's the, the phrase. Um, and I'm not, I wasn't one to try and knock it away, but I was at 18 when I left to go to college. It was time for me. I felt like just this sense of being a, a young man to initiate myself and to just go. And I turned my back and I went to college and it was an experience that I would like to go back and do over because so much of me was needing to define myself as who I was and was going to be that I had to cut my loving, coddling, nurturing parents off. And going back, I would like to do that differently and carry my parents along with me. Um, I almost cut them off because I wanted to go explore the world for myself to define myself. And I think I hurt my parents. I know that I hurt my parents because they're like, bring us with you, take us with you, share with us. And now as my boys are 20, 18 and 16, I'm watching them kind of do that as well, which is why I have a heightened state of awareness to this. It's like, no boys, I've created you to soar. I want you to go and be unmistakable, be remarkable, be distinctive and risky. Oh, 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 but take me with you. 
you know, pull me so that I can see the world through your eyes. And I think there's a part of them as young alpha dogs and males that they're like, no, dad, I need to go do this on my own. I, I can't, I can't have your uh, safety and security net behind me. I have to go fall myself if I'm going to learn this. And so I'm, I'm really sensitive to that right now because I saw that I did it to my parents and I'm watching my boys do it to me. And I would like to, there to be a middle ground where it can be experienced together. Mm. What is your relationship with your parents like now? Uh, as it's, they've sort of witnessed this evolution of your career and your life. Yeah, it's, it's very good. It's very loving. Um, but it's, uh, if I'm going to Oprah couch this, I think we both, uh, have a sense of it could be more, um, tightly knit. Uh, there's no friction. Um, there's just, uh, we don't share as much suffering, mutual suffering and mutual joy together. Um, I do with my family, my immediate family, my wife and my boys, it's, you know, at a 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. But with my mom and dad, I think we both maybe long for something a little bit deeper, but don't really know how to access that. Like don't have the the background or history by which to be able to quickly say, now we're at, you know, a level eight of deepness of consciousness of space and time. Mm. Um, do you have siblings? And if so, what are they, are they oddballs like you or, or misfits like you? Yeah, I've got a uh, a brother who's two years older who is uh, very different from me in that I'm very introverted. I'm very reclusive and uh, very much in my own head. Uh, so I gain energy by being alone. And when I'm with other people uh, at a cocktail reception, I energy is sucked out of me. And so that's kind of the classic definition of introvert versus extrovert. And, you know, I'm, I'm very safe on a stage. So people would say, well, you know, it seems like a, you know, a keynote speaker or a public image. Uh, you'd be, you know, you'd be naturally extroverted and I'm just not, I have control over the stage. And so I'm allowed to be introverted because I still control the environment. When I'm at a cocktail reception or needing to talk about everyone's work or families or in that kind of open environment, I don't do very well. My brother, on the other hand, is exceptional. He works the room. He is, you know, as effective as a politician in being able to connect with people. Uh, You know, if there's 20 people at the party, he connects with all 20 people. I would find one person and corner them off and spend the entire time with that one person. Hmm. Then I've got a younger sister uh, who is, I think, much more like me in that she is uh, artistic. She's poetic. She suffers with her own self in that she gets trapped in her own mind and uh, haunted by her own demons of doubt. And that is both good and bad. It allows, you know, it gives us both a place where we're able to kind of climb out, but know that when we fall down, that we're trapped by ourselves. And so it's not, um, that's not woe is me and my sister. Woe is us who are haunted by our own demons. That's just part of who we are. That is a part of, of life. And we both know that we're going to fall. We're going to get trapped, but that through our connectedness, either to family or close friends or literature or art, we're going to climb back out and find a higher ground. Mm. So, you know, one of the things that's really interesting to me about your career and your life is that you kind of, you know, have had 
both sides of the coin. You've been sort of the corporate, you know, wear a suit, check the boxes guy. And then you, you know, uh, are now the sort of polar opposite of that. And I'm curious how having experienced both sides of that coin has impacted the way that you've raised and educated your children. It, uh, I understand the value of both. And so as I talk about it with my boys, I call it this um, kind of expanding and contracting. So contracting is the focus, the execution, the discipline, the getting shit done. You've got to do your homework. You've got to uh, be on time when you say you're going to be somewhere. You have to be accountable. You have to understand authority. Um, and, and that is critical. It's important to progress and to achievement. Uh, on the other hand, there is the ex- expansion, the dreaming, the imagination that anything is possible, whimsical creativity, being unmistakable, uh, being a renegade. And so it's that ability to hold both, to be able to expand your mind and then contract and focus, then expand again and contract and focus. So, you know, the first half of my life was all about contracting and focusing and knocking out checklists. And then there was a portion of just expansive, 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 but it was at the point that I harnessed both and understood both was where I started to make a dent and move the needle as an artist and an entrepreneur. And that's what I've really tried to relay to my boys is the, the understanding of both at the same time, not one or the other. Mm -hmm. Okay. So walk me through the journey from college to doing the work that you do today, because uh, the work that you do today, like I said, is is just mind blowing to me and has had such an impact on everything that I do. My uh, work out of college, I had a professor in college who was a motivational speaker. And I, I, I'm kind of averse to that word because it's been, you know, really mis... It's been abused in that, you know, it's a rah-rah speaker. And I get it. You know, I'm not into rah-rah speakers. I just... They don't rah-rah me. It's it's kind of a cheap thrill. But he was, a, you know, a content speaker. He'd authored a book. He was a very, very effective uh, presenter. And he was also one of my college professors. And so following college, I just kind of linked onto his side. I'm like, what do you do? How do you do it? What? And he encouraged me to go and work at a uh, speakers bureau, uh, which is one here in San Diego called uh, Speak Inc. Speakers Bureau. And I worked my ass off. I went in because I loved kind of this concept of what this professor did and how he translated I was a business dude. And so I then was able to be a broker and broker keynote speakers and entertainment all over the world. And so I was kind of the business mind selling ideas. And the ideas were these different keynote speakers and authors and thought leaders. Uh, and I was able to broker them to, you know, Microsoft, Coke, IBM. Uh, so I was the agent or the business manager, uh, you know, speakers bureaus. Mm-hmm. So that's, I was a partner in one of those firms. And so what that did is I learned about this industry deeply, about the marketing side, about the customer service side, about what uh, speakers did that was successful, what they did that was not successful, uh, how there were some phenomenal speakers with really crappy marketing material that I couldn't book. And there were some 
quite frankly, pretty crappy speakers that had phenomenal marketing material that I could book all day long. And so I realized how much of a decision was made in this executive boardroom with five uh, either C-suite execs or meeting planners deciding who's going to be the keynote speaker for a particular conference. And it was usually based on a you know 60 seconds worth of video. So who's 60 seconds of marketing material was best to get them to pull the trigger to book that keynote speaker. It wasn't based on a body of work or what they'd done with their life or what uh, college they were a professor at. If your 60 seconds of video sucked, you weren't going to get the job. And so I learned a lot about marketing and about structure and about translating these idea of, of keynote speaking between meeting planners and audiences. So how do you go from there to where you're at now? That was the, that, that's, that's the midlife crisis that yeah. is at age 29. So I, in, I was the partner in this firm. And at the time I was also day trading with stocks leveraging because everything that I did or touched turned to gold. You buy InfoSpace at 10 and you hold it for three months and you sell it at 70. It was really a crazy time where I was kind of charting out uh, how to maximize and leverage myself in a business way um, to 10 exit so that I could retire at age 35 and then be a uh, a dad and a husband and coach little league and travel around the world. And at that point I was going to retire. So I just kind of had this mapped out that I was going to be so successful, so alpha doggish, you know, working from seven to seven, seven days a week, kicking ass, taking names, uh, that I was going to basically shorten the curve and retire by the time that I was 35 and then live life. And so I worked my ass off for, uh, those I guess it was almost nine years. And then the dot-com bomb came and rocked everyone's world, but especially my world, because I had my entire identity, my entire ego, my entire future centered around this concept of wealth and security and this success trajectory. And at the point that that was taken from me, and it was taken from me in uh just a uh, shark attack brutal way where not only did I go lose all of my wealth that I'd worked for for nine years um, and my 401ks and my kids college education and but I went you know negative I was I was in the hole and that just was a uh, a brutal place for me to be at age 30. Uh, because I didn't know who I was and I, I wasn't, I didn't have the energy to start over again. I was, um, afraid I was pissed. I was all of this idea of the American dream ended up being for me, the American nightmare in that I, I was going for trying to achieve a false oasis. I was going to achieve this idea of security and wealth and success that actually I never would have hit. It never would have been enough. There never would have been a mark that I would have said, okay, now I'm successful, now I can retire. And so I was climbing up a ladder that was standing up against the wrong wall and thinking that I was good, thinking that I was going to be successful and achieve and accomplish. But I had to have that ladder kicked out and ripped to the ground and have me 
<laughs> curled up naked and crying in the bathroom before I could even come out to find what's another wall that's even worth climbing up or exploring anymore. And at that point, I turned to art. Uh, there's, you know, in looking back, there's a lot of unhealthy channels or addictions that I could have turned to to numb that pain. I, this was not a triumphant, now I'm an artist. This was a horrific nightmare of a shift where everything that who I thought I was, uh, everything that I'd worked so hard for as a young kid, as a student, as a uh, businessman, was no longer relevant. It no longer existed, and that had been ripped to shreds. And so it was through this discovery of art that all of a sudden kind of uh, uh, almost fascinated me a little bit again. And it was a little bit intoxicating to learn that artists didn't care about money or didn't care about uh, prestige or power or possessions. They had... A different, a different line of path that they defined their own self by. And so at first it started with hanging with other artists and then starting to create myself and then really doing a deep dive into the masters of the past. You know, the ones that I knew about academically, uh, the Rembrandts and Picassos and Van Goghs and Michelangelos and uh, Georgia O'Keeffe's, I knew about them, but I didn't know them. And so as I saw with this new fresh set of eyes, I could not get enough. I couldn't get enough of their philosophies of life. And it no longer was even a matter of did I like Picasso's work. It's that Picasso's work now was fascinating to me because of I understood how he thought and why he thought and what context he was being raised in with war and with other artists and with um, merits of economy and injustice. And so I saw his work now as philosophy more so than I saw it as a noun or a finished piece of, of artwork. And so that just really was fascinating to me and very engaging. And so then I started to capture my own philosophies, these new ideas in art. And if I would have been, if I would have gone to art school, uh, got a master's degree or gone to Juilliard or been trained my whole life or was successful as an artist early on. A lot of artists have told me that I would not be, or I wouldn't be able to paint like I do. I wouldn't be able to think like I do because I would have been taught logically how to draw. I would have been taught logically how to paint, logically how to create music and harmony and pentatonic scales. And so for me, I went out and explored it myself. And I kind of re, not rewrote a rule book. I wrote my own rule book for what mattered to me, not what mattered to a professor or to another uh, artist uh, or a guru. For me, it was what was exciting to me. And what I found was exciting to me happened to also be exciting to other people because they then were able to see it through these, this new set of eyes. And so that's really the journey that, that I went on and have continued to really go deeper and deeper and expand further and further where my art will never be complete. My philosophies, my ideas, my exploring will never be complete. They're all kind of transcending and including the last set. And 
I'm not embarrassed about my early work, um, even though I should be if I were looking <laughs> at it logically, because uh, from a an art critic perspective, my early work sucked. But my early work led to my later work, which led to my photography, which led to my sculpture, which led to my writing, which led to my keynote speaking, which leads to my performing, which leads to my thinking. So it's it's all kind of uh, yeah, continuing to transcend and include even the stuff, the parts of me that that suck or that could be critiqued and say that they, um, hey, that one that's not that one wasn't very good or that wasn't your best period. It's like yeah, you're right. Um, isn't that cool that I get more and new and better periods ahead of me, that my best work is still yet to be done? Well, that raises so many questions, as, as you might imagine. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, you, you, you said you or I said, hey, cut me off if I start rambling. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even remember the freaking question that you asked me that led me to that point of my answer. So at some point, you're going to have to tighten me up here and say, hey, Eric, <laughs> the, the question was, do you like Christmas or Halloween better? And uh, you started talking about Socrates. So uh, real me and start going too far. Well, so well, let, let's start with this question. You know, you mentioned two words uh, at the very beginning of the answer to the question, which were ego and identity. And it seems to me like one of the big lessons that has come about from your life is learning to separate ego and identity from all that which is external. And I'm curious how people do that in their lives. Because what I found in my own experience is that when our ego and our identity are caught up in things that are external – our sense of self, our sense of self worth, fluctuates based on what's going on externally. Yes, and that will be an ongoing battle for me. That is my true self and my false self. And my false self is my ego, my identity, who I want to be perceived as in the world. I want people to think, hey, I'm a kick-ass speaker. Hey, I want he's a kick-ass artist. He's uh, an awesome husband. He's a phenomenal dad. I want my false self wants to be affirmed. My ego, my identity wants to be affirmed for being really, really good at all of those things that I value. My true self doesn't really need to worry about kind of this meritocracy of achievement or whether I am a good or bad artist, whether I am a good or bad speaker, even whether I am a good or bad husband. I always want to aspire to be a more loyal, uh, affirming, loving, nurturing husband, but I shouldn't be graded on it. It should be kind of what can I do next? And so that's where I'm at this, uh, I would say just even especially in the last two years, this kind of inflection point of moving from a life of ego and identity and significance and um, achievement and power and prestige and possessions and success into a life of significance, into a life that is where I'm not the main character of the story any longer, but I am part of other people's story where it's all about how can I make other people around me more effective and better? Not judging them, not pointing to their false self and saying, hey, you're really wrapped up in your identity. You know, you you could have achieved New York Times book bestseller. You could have uh, been a higher rated keynote speaker, a better artist, a multi-platinum selling singer-songwriter. It is about a kind of a softer, gentler, calmer sense of significance um, over just merit and success. So that's how I would identify 
um, my identity now versus kind of the achievement alpha dog uh, that I had been in, you know, not that long ago. And I'm still wrestling with it. You know, I, I still want to be very, very successful. I want to be good at all those things that I said. Mm-hmm. I just don't want my sense of self-worth or my contentment with life to be surrounded by how I'm judged or how I judge myself in those categories. I want it to be okay if I didn't meet my expectations. I want it to be okay if I still have room to improve. And uh, I've got a lot of growing to do and a lot of work to do in that area because I, I suffer a lot because I don't meet my own expectations. And my expectations are very, very high. I've got expectations of perfectionism. And that's great for continuing to grow my uh, business and wanting to be better and more effective, but it's not great as far as personal contentment and adding value to the people in my life that I love the most, like my wife, who ends up being the recipient of a lot of my downside uh, fallout or emotions when things don't go my way. And so I would like to be more nurturing and affirming and caring and loving to her as I continue achieving both success and failure uh, going forward. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about this because as somebody who has a public presence with a lot of work that is out in the world to be judged by other people, like when I listen to you say that, I'm thinking to myself, this is the work of a lifetime if you're going to be somebody whose work is shared publicly with other people. Yeah. Um. I'm, I am out there and I am open to critique and, uh, you know, people in the public eye, I think, uh, maybe they are immune. Maybe, maybe people are good. Maybe these, these guys are good at saying, Hey, you know, what you say doesn't matter. doesn't hurt me. doesn't, uh, it's not offensive. I'm going to do what I do. Um, I'm very human and it hurts deeply and I'm, uh, cut, (laughs) Uh, really raw, and so that's part of something that I, I shouldn't be. I, I'm too. That that just means that I'm too attached to this identity still, and that's my own weakness. In when it is critiqued and someone says it sucks, um, I need to let that go and move on. And I, I am decent at. It. I'm good at it. I'm protected from it and insulated from it in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the world's a rough place, and I'm out there. And I deserve to be judged and critiqued. I'm not immune to it. Uh, I, it's part of my future journey is that however I am judged or critiqued shouldn't affect uh, my identity. And so I will continue creating because I'm looking to share. I'm looking to amplify these ideas and translate ideas because they mean a lot to me. And so the the critique really isn't relevant to that sharing. It is it is a personal journey and it's a fun journey. And it, the to the extent that I allow critique and judgment and haters to affect me is just that's on me to to get over because it will always be there. Um, that's on me. Yeah. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online 
you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So I, I may have asked you this last time, and I kind of want to ask you this again. Uh, you know, you in an incredibly dark period turned to art and really in a lot of ways experienced post-traumatic growth. So two questions actually come from this, and I'm curious to see how you'll answer them this time. There's some line in your book that stood out to me and it has always stayed with me. It was the quote by Soren Kierkegaard that all changes preceded by crisis. And I know I asked you this before, so I'm curious to see how you'll answer it two years later. Um, do you feel that the crisis is necessary for our evolution and growth? And then why do you think that some people experience post-traumatic stress and why do others experience post-traumatic growth when they experience situations like the one you've been through? Yeah. Great. And I, I, I like the fact that I'm, I'm answering these questions again because it's the same, uh, spirit of response, but it's a different state of looking at it. So is all change preceded by crisis? I would stay, say still, uh, yes. <laughs> and, uh, however, I would change that to crisis could be identified or defined or translated differently as well as change. And so for me, that there needs, there's, there's a necessary amount of suffering that needs to happen for new ideas or new work or change to happen. Uh, if, we, if I don't suffer, I won't know what joy or contentment is. If I flatline, then I won't be able to experience it as deeply. And so the cracks are where the light shines through. The cracks 
and the weaknesses and the suffering and the pain is what allows for new growth. So that all change is preceded by crisis. Change is actually good. Um, it doesn't feel good, but it actually leads us to new places. And suffering and heartbreak and loss and bankruptcy, um, I think they need to happen. And for us to be able to experience a heightened state of contentment and success. And it was true in my life, and it's true in every person of significance uh, that I value has experienced deep and painful setback or heartbreak or suffering to be able to get to the next level, to be able to get to the next space of awareness. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's do this. Let's actually get into your work because um, there's so many things here that I feel are so relevant to the people that are listening. And what I want to do is talk about how you manage to go from being somebody who understands what makes speakers bureaus being able to sell speakers and get them booked to a person who completely ignores all those rules and reinvents the category. Um, because that's such an odd paradox to me. Like, you know that it works, but you're willing to ignore all the best practices and, you know, I remember in our very first conversation, you said, I didn't go to Toastmasters. I went and looked at how people who were performers like musicians and comedians engaged audiences. So the stage is yours to talk about what your thoughts are and what the future of this looks like, how it impacts our creativity and how this can be applied to our work, regardless of what it is. Sure. And it's, uh, I understand best practices and I understand, uh, thought leadership, and I understand lean Six Sigma uh, waste reduction. So it's not that I'm ignoring it. It's that I understand it. And I understand that's how a lot of minds work. It's how my mind used to work. So I get a lot of that. And then I, I hold it. And then I go and explore. So that's my uh, kind of framework for where the, I start the journey from is understanding what the rules are. And then I break off and I twist the rules upside down. And then I look for what is engaging and fascinating and uh, sticky and viral. And I don't limit it to one area of, say, keynote speaking or business. I look at music. I look at artists. I look, you know, all across the board to find out what is causing stuff to um, fuel uh, what is are causing the new consumer to migrate to specific directions, and I find that fascinating because it, it's being led by you know the Britney Spears, Katy Perry's, Lady Gaga's, Justin Bieber's, Kim Kardashian's, Kanye's, and I personally think they're they're using the the absolute best tools, and I think I can use those tools in a more healthy fashion for uh, seducing consumers to look at ways that make you know. True heroes like Mother Teresa and MLK and Gandhi as fascinating as Miley Cyrus and uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce. And so I think the tools are all, all out there. It's how we use them and how liberal we are with accessing them and how creatively we access them. So that for me as a speaker, um, I'm fascinated by the, the younger generation, the millennials, and how they communicate and why they communicate. And then from the stage, I like to take a lot of those things that I've seen in concerts and be able to use them in a traditional lecture format, knowing that there's a best practice for effective keynote speaking or that NSA or Toastmasters would regard as 
That's the power stance. That is the effective slide with less writing. This is, and for me, then moving into authenticity, moving into freestyling, allowing myself to be so fully caught up in the moment um, that there's no longer any rules that hold uh, the presentation down. There, it's a framework to understand, or you know, as you would say, a a compass to point me in a direction, but I don't really know exactly where it's going to go next. And that authenticity is, I think, uh, very exciting to, to audiences. And it's no longer a lecture. It becomes a share. It's no longer a keynote. It is an experience. And so I'm, I'm pushing all of these boundaries and not all of them are successful. You know, I'm, I'm doing things like lipstick cameras inside my paintbrushes. I am using uh, quadcopters with GoPros for uh, video imagery and engagement and audience activity. And some of it's super, super, super cool. And some of it doesn't work. But it, continuing to explore those boundaries is really exciting to me and uh, that's where I see the future going is because I, I have found, even though maybe I failed four out of five times on trying different techniques, I did find one and it was a jackpot. And now that's part of my normal, uh, keynote that I can, I can include multiple jackpots that I've learned over 10 years. And so now my keynote, you know, encompasses eight jackpot breakthrough ideas and then it might have one area where it kind of sputters or faults a little bit, but people don't remember that. I learned from it, and then I pick up and go and try a new one at the next show. You know, one of the things you and I were talking about before we hit record was this idea that you and I don't like to people provide people with maps because the breakthroughs that occur when you give people a compass are things that they would come up with on their own, and they're far better than anything that we could teach them if we were to give them a handbook or a formula or say, this is how you get the result that I've gotten. Um, so I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, and uh, I just want to hear what you have to say about it. Sure, and we'll, we'll find out how many of your uh, listeners are meeting planners here at this point, um, <laughs> or how, how much I'm going to uh, say that you and I talked about offline. But yeah, there, there's this idea that um, meeting planners want to give their audience actionable substance. They want to give them takeaways. They want to give them uh, three things that they can do on Monday morning that will affect their business immediately. And, and I get that. And I understand why they're asking for that. And they've, they've had maybe some bad experiences with speakers that have gone way off topic or maybe just talked about themselves or uh, it was kind of froofy or whimsical. Uh, what I'm looking to do from, from the stage, and, and I, I, I'd said to you, there's an adage, uh, give a man a fish, feed him for the day, uh, teach a man to fish, feed him for a lifetime, is I want to teach audiences to fish. If I give them a fish, if I give them actual substance or three things to do on Monday morning, that's the highest they'll go. That's the most new things they'll do are the three things that I told them. If I teach them how to think, if I teach them how to innovate, how to explore, why it's actually better to explore their own ideas than for me to give them some ideas, then it's transcendent. Then sky's the limit for how far uh, the information has to travel. 
if I just give them best practices or actual substance, that's the height that they'll be able to go. And they might be good. They might be cool ideas, but then they don't have legs to get further potential further. And so I'm much more into the idea that the actual substance, the best practice that I give them is an unlocking of their own mind, uh, an expanded state of consciousness that they can look at all of their challenges and opportunities from a little different perspective. So I'm looking to move them to a transcendent state from point A to point B rather than leave them in point A and give them a couple of, of uh, you know, new tools to use at point A. I want to migrate them all the way over to point B and make them invent their own tools over at uh, this transcendent new space of mindset B. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm using my hands to describe this. Oh, I'm I, wondering how well that translates uh, just in audio for your <laughs> listeners that I, can't see me. But if you could see my hands, I've decided, you know, I've, I've showed what mind A is, where mind B is, this enlightened state of thinking at mind land B over here. I, I hope, I hope that translates. <laughs> yeah, I think it will. You know, one of the other things that you and I were talking about was what we both kind of see as the future of, of keynote speaking and, and, you know, experience in general and conferences. Um, and I, I loved what you were saying about sort of creating this experience where you couldn't translate it into something digital. So I would love for you to expand on that. And more importantly, I think the, the other piece of this that I want to dive into is how do people take what we're li- they're listening to now and apply it to whatever it is their field is, regardless of what that field is? Sure. Let's, uh, let's take these uh, separately and we'll, sure. we'll divide and conquer. <laughs> um, the, first, the first one was uh, kind of the future of what, what I think I would like to see conferences and events and even keynote speaking be. And so I think you and I were in agreement that we've really got kind of an old school model for what has been successful. You've got a ballroom uh, with four walls, you've got seats, you've got a stage, you've got lights, you've got a sound kit. Uh, is I think there, I would like to see the future of events. And, and it's not even that I would like to, I think, I think it will absolutely go there because people are, are realizing why why would I go to Miami and attend that conference when I can just be sent a, an email with maybe a video link and a PDF file with the three actionable takeaways uh, the three you know the three best practices you know I can stay here in my office and keep working that if we're going to continue to make events and conferences relevant, we have to create an experience that they could not have received if they just stayed at their home office, if they stayed at their place of work or business and kept doing business and just read the the email or read the book. And so for conferences, it's going to be aha moments. It's going to be networking. It's going to be something that happens in the kind of face-to-face interaction or the energy that when you get like-minded spirits physically in the room together and sharing, that it goes to a place that they could not have gotten on their own. So that's for conferences. For keynote speaking, I see very similarly is if you can just read my book, then there's no sense coming to see my live show. If you could, you know, just read my blogs or uh, hop online and watch a YouTube video, then there would be no need to go and see the show live. So at every show that I do, I'm looking to create moments that cannot be duplicated on digital or social media or uh, in an email. And those are 
multi-dimensional theatrical elements of my show that I've learned from, you know, we've, we've partnered with Cirque. I had, you know, Cirque du Soleil show producers come and consult with them and work with us about visuals, about audience setup, about timing and cadence. Uh, I've talked with uh, electric dance musicians, EDM uh, DJs about this cadence of rhythm and timing of delivery and how do you use mathematical algorithms in timing to take the audience kind of on a cadence so that they're anticipating the drop and then they look forward to the drop and then they feel released by the drop. And so that can be duplicated in keynote speaking and it can be duplicated in music and it can be duplicated in literature. Uh, but how our minds and bodies and visuals work are all critical to that live experience. And so I'm looking to kind of use all of those best practices, formulas, ideas from all these different areas and move them into uh, an area that they haven't been before. And that is a wow experience. That's an aha experience that audiences were not expecting, they haven't seen before, and therefore it is unmistakable and it's cool. And that's what I see really the future of, of keynote speaking being. And, and even from, let's say, um, a visual standpoint is we use uh, traditional, say, one cam shoot or three, three cam shoots. They call it IMAG, image magnification, that they throw up on the screen. And if we were to watch a, uh, you know, it's, it's very corporate. It's there's the, you know, they're in the box, they're boom, magnified up on screen. I like to now use those cameras differently and by position them with my show producer around the room, we're no longer magnifying an image, we're magnifying energy. And so we put them specifically in spots where we're calling the show, we're switching visuals. And I liken it to if you were to watch a football game, a college football game in the 1980s, you have one camera set at the 50-yard line that moves back and forth across the field and it follows the team. And that's the way things were done. That's the way that people use keynote uh, cameras now. I like to use them as they're using them in the Super Bowl now, where I'll position cameras behind the quarterback, behind the middle linebacker, move them over behind the coach. And I'm moving them in motion to capture energy like they would shoot a Super Bowl nowadays, as opposed to how they shot a college game in the 80s. So that's one example of, of how I'm using and pushing um, tools that we already have and using them differently than even they're being used by 99% of um, speakers nowadays. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, our new book, Unmistakable, Why Only is Better Than Best, comes out next week. And if you yourself have aspirations of writing a book, it actually starts with building an online presence of some sort, like a website or a blog. In fact, learning to build a website is probably one of those skills that will always be useful no matter what you do with your life and career. And our friends at HostGator can help you to get started with 30% off their hosting packages and a super easy to use website builder. So visit HostGator.com slash creative and use the promo code creative for 30% off all their hosting packages. That was epic. Uh, <laughs> so one of the things I think that will come up, and, and as I hear this, the, the first thing that my mind goes to is this sort of ability to push boundaries and to push edges and to try things that haven't been proven to work will naturally elicit a lot of resistance and fear. And I'm wondering how you overcome that. Like, how do you deal with the mental aspects of this and the psychological aspects of pushing boundaries at this level? 
Well, I'm, I'm still, I'm still dealing with it because I, I struggle when things don't work. Um, you know, as I'm trying new visuals and as we're switching cameras and maybe there was a camera angle, uh, that was shaky or that swish panned too fast and gave this, uh, moment where the audience became almost nauseous. And so that sucks. I don't want that to happen. I don't want that to ever happen, but in pushing these boundaries and exploring at this level, those things are going to happen. Um, and I'm going to have, you know, they happen very I'd like to say they happen very rarely because we've explored and experienced and we have a lot of professionalism around what goes into each show, but we're pushing boundaries at each new show as well. And we're trying something even newer and cooler. And, you know, I've done a lot of stuff that is so, so cool that it's not even, it's time hasn't come yet. <laughs> it, it was too early, you know, lipstick cameras inside my paintbrushes it's too early. We don't have the technology yet to be able to capture how cool that idea is on being actually inside the paint spreading onto the canvas. The ideas in my head, I still have how this is going to work, but we need to let technology and um, connectivity catch up to what I have in my head. So I've, I've got game plans for um, one, three, five, ten years out, and I'm continuing to create in that space. And I've got a myself and my show producers and my kind of show team that ensures flawless execution at this show now. Um, so I'm experimenting in my head years out and then have a team to ensure that this program goes uh, flawlessly for this show. So we do limit downside exposure um, in the actual live show that I'm doing, but I'm, I am exploring and creating uh, all the time. Okay, so if that really, I mean, I think the, the sort of big theme of our conversation has been using art to electrify an audience and move them emotionally. I'm curious how you do that regardless of what the art form is, whether it's me recording a podcast, whether it's you, you know, uh, keynote speaking, or whether it's somebody writing a book, like how could this be applied to multiple art forms? That it is the, the heart and the head is I, we take in, I take in information in my head and I, I'm not always... I, they're not always alive at the same time and in tandem, but to the extent that I can capture the heart and the head, the art and the creativity and the discipline and action, if I can condense those and put those together, that's what moves me and that's what moves audiences. And so I want to create cool art but I want to do it in a cool way that is emotionally engaging so that the piece of art itself um, is no longer as relevant as the emotion and energy and ideas that actually created it. So the buildup to the art, the stories before the art, the quotes and the connection and the reflection before I actually put one stroke of paint across the canvas is actually the setup that makes the art effective where the art itself then becomes a trigger. It becomes the drop. It becomes the defining moment. And if you were just to walk in the Louvre, walk past a painting and just look at a painting, you can't feel all of those elements. So I have a really unique platform in being able to attach a lot of meaning and emotion and authenticity into a blank canvas before it's even been activated. And then once I activate it, 
it's no longer just about the piece of art itself. It's about the entire experience that led up to that piece of art. And now that art becomes something that transcends just uh, a noun. It transcends just a painting that hangs in an office. It, be, it is part of an experience. It's part of a bigger story. And it is cool. And you can't put a price on cool. You can't say um, that piece of art is worth $10 and that piece of art is worth $12, that one is worth $1 or $20,000, now it's worth what the experience was. And that's where I'm really excited about the idea is you can't put a price on cool. So as long as I keep creating cool stuff, there's no reason that anyone would ever put a price on it. Hmm. Brilliant. Um, so I'm going to finish with two final questions. You've referenced numerous artists throughout our conversation. Uh, so I want to ask you about one piece of art, book, music, movie, uh, anything that has profoundly influenced your life that you would want to share with our audience. Sure. It's, um, it would be the really, and it, this is a portal. It's not a, a specific person, but it's this, center of action and contemplation uh, that my wife is uh, in school at. And through that, I have experienced uh, St. Francis of Assisi, Thomas Merton, Ken Wilbur, the great um, non-dualistic mystical thought leaders and philosophers of ancient history, you know, into Eastern philosophy, Zen Buddhists, um, it, it, it was, it's a portal for me where I have learned how to think differently. And, uh, that's not an individual artist. There are individual artists that also can maybe fit into that portal. Uh, for me, you know, someone like, uh, Bono would be an artist that some of his writings, some of his translations have led me back into that portal of uh, kind of a refined state of consciousness or expanded consciousness um, that it really, really excites me. And so it would be that portal. And I, I said specifically the Center for Action and Contemplation because it's actually a school that exists in New Mexico uh, that my, my wife uh, went and attended because she was kind of intrigued by it. And I've been able to have been the huge beneficiary of a whole new body of thinking and thought and awareness just in the last two years that has really lit me up. It, is, it has been one of the coolest things I've experienced, and it's allowed me to deal with suffering. It's allowed me to deal with my demons, with the dark night of the soul. Um, it's allowed me to experience greater creativity, greater diplomacy, uh, greater emotional sensitivity. Um, so I realize that's a lot. <laughs> mm. I'm, I'm excited about it because it's, it's fresh in my mind. Um, it's not an individual artist. I apologize. It's not an individual philosopher. I apologize, but it's a new way of thinking that gives me access to all of those artists and philosophers that I value because they wouldn't be held by one single person. It would be a collective body of thought that is non-dualistic and is just awesome. Wow. All right. So I have one last question for you, uh, which is how right. we finish all our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? 
authenticity. Um, because that it is, is it is an engagement. Unmistakable can be one-to-one with another individual. Uh, it can be from a stage with 20,000 people, but that authenticity is fascinating. And when you get to that moment of being authentic and genuine, that in itself is what is most fascinating about the human spirit. And it can be captured at the dinner table and it can be captured in a stadium. And that is what's unmistakable. That's what's remembered. And that's what is most real, I think, in connecting humanity. Awesome. Well, Eric, this has been just uh, a blast. Uh, I can't thank you enough for uh, you know coming back and subjecting yourself to my crazy questions and sharing your story and your insights with our audience. This has been amazing. Wait, if we if we've got just a, a couple more seconds, just let yeah. me say that uh, what you do is for me and to me unmistakable. And I turn down virtually all interviews and webcasts and podcasts because. I suck at them. I'm just not good at them. And so I turn them down to protect myself. But you back in 2013, when you interviewed me, were able to pull out a part of me that was um, a part that I was excited to share. And very few, if any, other interviewers have been able to do that or that I felt safe with or vulnerable with or connected with. And so I just don't do it. But you did it once in 2013. I've remembered you and followed you. And it's been an honor to come back and connect in 2016 as you're getting ready to launch uh, your first book and being able to watch your career and your falling and suffering and pain and triumph and joy. And so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for you and where you are in this process uh, also in your, in your unmistakable journey. So, uh, kudos, kudos to you. Hmm. Well, I think that just makes a, a beautiful way to wrap up our conversation. And, uh, thank you so much for saying that. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.